You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show on 710KURV. Here's Sergio. Ana Leal is the creator of I Love Chamoy, and it's carb-free, sugar-free, gluten-free. It's vegan, no artificial dyes, keto-friendly, Latina-founded. Ana, it's a pleasure. How are you, friend? I'm doing so well. How are you? Good. Where are you, Anna? What city I'm are you in? I'm in McAllen, Texas. You're in McAllen. Right now I'm traveling, but I'm, I'm from McAllen, Texas. Or, yeah. Originally from McAllen, or where do you live? I was born and raised in Mexico. My family and I have been in the RGB for about 10 years. Excellent. So congratulations to you. I, I was given a, a bottle of your I Love Chamoy, which I've seen at H-E Butt. I've seen it at H-E-B now. Tell me about some of the accolades, uh, prizes that you've won as a result of your creation, and then describe your creation for me. Sure. Um, so my company's called I Love Chamoy. Um, I wanted to make a diabetic-friendly chamoy for my dad after he was diagnosed. There we go. I couldn't find uh, kind of like a healthier version of Mexican candy for him, so I decided to make it, and it's been a crazy adventure for a year and a half with this company. Um, and last year, we were chosen as ATV's Quest for Texas Best Brand Price winner, and it was amazing uh, to be able to to... Uh, win that prize and then be able to have our product in the grocery store that my parents go to, you know, a couple blocks away from the house. Um, and yeah, growing this company has been the, the greatest adventure of my life. What is monk fruit? What is it? So monk fruit is an all natural sweetener that is completely sugar free, carb free and calorie free. Um, and it's what we use as the sweetener in our chamois instead of sugar. And that helps it be, completely calorie-free, completely sugar-free. It doesn't spike up uh, blood sugar levels, and it tastes really good. I need to look it up, see what this monk fruit is. I mean, can you describe it for me? I mean, where do you get it? Where do you buy it? Is it grown in Texas, this monk fruit? What is it? <laughs> it's a it's a Chinese fruit, um, but the way that we use it in our chamoy is as a pure powder. Mm. A little bit goes a long way. So think of uh, if you would use a cup of sugar, with monk fruit, you end up using maybe like a tablespoon, and it's the same the same sweetness level. Oof. Uh, but it's it's all natural. It's a healthier alternative to sugar, um, and it doesn't contain aspartame or anything like that. So it's a fantastic uh, alternative for anybody looking for okay. a sugar free lifestyle. And that's a sweetener. And I love chamoy. Creator Ana Leal here from McAllen, again winner of that HEB competition for new foods. So it was that. Uh, last year or the year before when you won that competition over at H-E, but was was that the prize, the, the the fact that they put in they placed a big order for all this and they put it in store shelves, or did they give you a check uh, as a winner of this competition? So the the price of the contest is a check. It was $25,000, nice. which was amazing and such a gift for us to be able to continue to grow our business. But it also helped us meet a lot of ATV executives, and they had a lot of interest in putting our chamoy in store. So our product is in uh, over 250 ATVs across the state, which is a dream come true. I was reminded of, have you seen the movie that's on, I think it's Disney Plus, uh, it's the the story of how Hot Cheetos came about. Have you seen that one yet? It's a pretty good movie. Oh, I, I Absolutely, yeah, and I right. cried the whole time. I was, was amazing. <laughs> well, I'm sure you identified with so, <laughs> some of the storyline in developing the product and getting it to market. Uh, that's, I would say, st- well, they've tapped into it quite well in providing the 
hot oh. Cheetos and hot potato chips and everything else. So this is kind of a, a, continu- a continuation of that. Yeah. Are you going to branch out into something else? You got, I got the little bottle of I Love Chamoy here in my hand. So you'll find it at H-E- mm-hmm. H-E-B everywhere. But are you going to branch out into other products as a result of this success? Yes. So we're actually launching our second product ever on Friday of this week, and it's sugar-free Mexican candy. It's a completely sugar-free candy uh, that is vegan, gluten-free, sugar-free, and it's a chili watermelon flavor, um, and it's incredible. And I'm, I'm so excited to be branching into candy now and be able to introduce that Excellent. To, Congratulations. to our followers. Yeah. Thank you so much. And what has been so amazing has been every single move we make with our company, it's truly informed by our customer base we you know with the candy specifically we ask them even how you know what flavor to do how to design the bag you know we, we kind of take them through every single step through our social handle so <laughs> it always feels like we're taking every single step with, with our followers and with our customers. i want to say thank you to my friend renda she brought in some watermelon and some pineapple yesterday and she gave me a bottle i said here try this <laughs> i poured yeah, it I on because i love spicy uh you know the chamoy i, I love that with uh, with with fruit, and I, I was reminded of that little kid in that movie that was talking about hot Cheetos. With a little kid was a taste tester, right? And he goes, "Ooh, yeah. ooh, oh, it pica, oh, it pica, good. It's it's uh, it's rico. It, 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 it's it's delicious as well. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll, you'll love it. It's it's sweet. It's spicy. If you love uh, to put this on on your fruit and look for her new products, which by the way, uh, that new candy line that. Uh, you said watermelon and chili flavored uh, candy. Mm-hmm. When does that hit stores? When is when can we find that over at HEB? It's going to be available on our website oh. on Friday, and then ATB a couple weeks after. All right. What's your website? I love chamoy dot com. I love chamoy dot com. Mm-hmm. I right. love chamoy. Yeah. What's the candy going to be called? The same by the same name? Um, the the. Uh, product line is going to be called Bites, and we're working on additional flavors. Um, and then later this year, we're going to have a mango flavored of our nice, sugar free chamoy yeah. as well. Those are um, mm-hmm. my wife's favorite paletas, is the chili flavored watermelon yeah. chili flavored. It's going to taste like that. Mango ones. Those are good. Excellent. Excellent work. Which, by the way, with your company, you got to tell me how many people do you employ in producing I Love Chamoy and the candy right now? You're a job creator. So I'm. The- I'm the only full-time employee. Uh, we're very, very lucky to have a co- co-packing facility in Mission, Texas, but it's also Latina-owned who makes our product. But when it comes to full-time employment, I'm, I'm the only employee, uh, but we've been very lucky to find incredible partners in the RGV. Um, That's a lot of orders coming in, and At some point, yeah. you're, you're going to have to create a, a bigger assembly line or, or production facility for this. That's what I hope and pray for you, that you become much bigger. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think we're nearing that that place, which is a an incredible blessing and also uh, it's going to be a difficult obstacle, but I'm excited about it. Um, and something that we haven't announced this yet on, on our social handles, but we will this week, is that we just launched the Isla Chamoy Scholarship with UTRGV, and that's going to benefit students, freshmen and sophomore students studying studying business. And the hope is um, that, you know, we continue to inspire entrepreneurship in the RGV because it inspired me to create this company. Great so. work. Great work. Please uh, circle back. Come back to me when, when you have that conversation with that press event on the scholarship, the I Love Chamoy scholarship over at her business school. It would be nice to get you back on here 
talk about uh, this benefit for kids. Anna, it's a pleasure. Congratulations. Continued success. Thank, Thank you, you for joining much. us today. Anna Thank Leal. You. And again, her product, I love chamoy. And if you love sweet and chile on your fruit, that chamoy, chilito, sugar-free, wonderful sugar-free liquid you can find at H-E Butt. This is the Sergio Show. From Border Patrol, our union office for Border Patrol here in South Texas, Chris Cabrera, my friend, joining me. The, the wave of humanity crossing the border, I suspect, has not stopped. What has stopped, though, is the intense national coverage. Yet again, when it comes to this, this per, it seems to be a permanent problem, this chronic problem that we have in lawmakers and policymakers like they will not be fixing anytime soon. So I'm bringing in Chris to share some of the numbers that he sees, maybe try to verify some of these national reports, of the few national reports that we see, that this new policy put in by the Biden administration reportedly reducing from 80-plus percent of individuals crossing and staying to about 45 percent of these individuals crossing and staying. So let, let's start with that policy first. What do you hear on this implementation, this policy, where individuals who abuse the the asylum process is going to be turned down and then they can't come back for another five or so years. What, what do you know? What do you hear? Yeah, you know, from what we're hearing, from what we're seeing, people are still crossing. They're still taking advantage of the asylum um, loopholes. Uh, however, not as many are crossing uh, as far as give ups are, are turning themselves in like they were. But we still do have a, a high number of people crossing, uh, trying to evade detection. Um, and we also have what I guess I should say shouldn't be ignored is um, the amount of people on the Mexican side from far away foreign countries like Haiti, like Venezuela, like Colombia that are just waiting for the right time to come across. So they're, they're staging on the South side, uh, you know, in the, in the tens of thousands um, waiting for the right time. And who knows when that's going to happen, but you know, obviously they're not returning back home. When you say tens of thousands, you're referring to the entire Southwest border, right? Not only us, but all of Texas and then going into other areas, right? No, not necessarily. You know, we, we've heard numbers between 18 and 30,000 uh, Haitians just in the Reynosa area. And that that's just in our area. Uh, and then you have a, uh, Colombians, Venezuelans out in the Brownsville area. There's huge numbers waiting to come across. Uh, and that's just, you know, two different, three different nationalities that, that are in huge numbers, not to mention all the other nationalities that are, are, are staging close by and waiting to come across. What so there are huge numbers waiting. Wow. What would you, Chris, what would you say is the, how do I call it, catch rate versus uh, the getaway, gotaway rate right now? What, what is it, half and half? You know, traditionally the number has always been around, hovers around 50%. Um, now, regardless of what it says on the actual uh, statistics, you know, I think us in the field realize that we're, we're dealing uh, with about 50% gotaway rate. Chris Cabrera with National Border Patrol joining me. Any new trends in foreign nationals, new countries that you've seen? You know, I, I can't say there are new countries because, I mean, we've pretty much seen them all here <laughs> recently. I, I think the only difference is, uh, you know, we have a lot of, of Haitians um, staging uh, across the border in Reynosa. A friend of mine was over there this weekend and saying there's, she was, she was telling me that there was huge communities uh, that, that are kind of... Um, popping up in you know on on the mexican side like little tent cities but all haitians and they're um you know policing themselves and and starting their own little gangs and stuff over there so that that's another issue that that needs to be looked at interesting you've been with border patrol long enough to give me a, a good assessment on this 
on a typical day many years ago, nationwide, well, which would mostly be southwest border, how many folks would cross illegally at the border, and what is the number now? Was it like 800 back then to a certain thousand now? So what what would you say it is? Yeah, it, it would be anywhere from a few hundred to maybe, you know, you know, a few hundred to, you know, maybe close to a thousand to, to well over, you know, a couple thousand now. And uh, oddly enough, when, when I first came in, um, we would have a, a busy time and a slow time. So from late January to around late March, early June, we would see folks crossing, mainly Mexican, uh, coming to work. And then everything would just stop. It would it would just get completely slow and, and very boring up until the to to the Christmas time or to, to the after the Christmas holidays that was our, our off season and it, it would just it would trickle in you know you'd see down here where it's traditionally pretty busy you know ten twenty people a day uh, in in the slow season to now it just hasn't stopped it hasn't gotten slow in in probably about five six years. Borstar, the emergency response people in La Quinena Ranch Country, how busy are they these days answering calls emergency calls but people that are wandering that 60 mile stretch between here and Kingsville. Oh, you know, they're, they're very busy. Our, our Borstar agents are always busy. They're, they're obviously specially trained. They get, they got a lot of uh, useful skills that they put to work. Um, so they're very busy. And on top of that, I think the ones that people don't talk about are, are our agents that are medically trained. We have a emergency medical program. So you have the Borstar guys that, that work certain areas and then our, uh, our medics are cross-trained. So they're, you know, regular line agents, but they work in a EMT capacity. So if somebody goes down in the, in the field, whether it's an agent or um, uh, an illegal crossing or, or even, you know, some guy on the side of the road walking his dog, uh, our agents are there to, to help out and, you know, provide proper medical care. All right, buddy. You get, be safe out there with this heat. And uh, pr- I appreciate the update, Chris. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Chris Cabrera with Border Patrol. He's with the union office. This is The Sergio Show. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. He's senior counsel with the Lawfare Project. I welcome to the program Gerard Felitti. Mr. G, appreciate your time. So the Trump administration. No, thank you for having me. You bet. The Trump administration and these Abraham Accords and Yes, just amazing work that was done during the, the Trump administration, the diplomatic relations between a handful of Muslim-majority countries with Israel, setting up these diplomatic relations. It was the UAE, uh, Sudan, Morocco, Bahrain, for example. And I understand that there's a push by some lawmakers, including Democrats, as a bipartisan group, Republicans, some Democrats, asking the Biden administration to do more to try to push back, 
against U.S. adversaries in, in Africa. What more can you tell me about this latest push, Mr. G? Well, there are two things here. First of all, the, the Abraham Accords were groundbreaking because they really showed support for Israel, our longest and best ally in the Middle East, uh, against everything that's going on there by normalizing relations with countries detached from the uh, Israeli-Palestine conflict. That was really genius of Trump to do. We, that's the closest that we've come to peace in the Middle East for decades. And now Republicans and Democrats, there's a bipartisan push to get this expanded in other countries in Africa and the Middle East. One of the reasons is to counter Chinese influence. Okay. China has been coming in strong. They've, they've been brokering relationships between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which have been at each other's throats for a long time, helping them normalize relations. China has been pushing itself in Africa, basically buying up the, uh, the, the whole continent with cheap trade deals uh, that, that are going to cost Africa in the long run. And America is nowhere to be found. We no longer have a cohesive foreign policy there. The Biden administration has dropped the ball. So what we're seeing is an effort by Congress to push Biden into expanding relationships in Africa to counter Chinese influence. Why is Africa? Africa important to the U.S.? Africa is important for a whole number of reasons, one of which is it's going to be one of our biggest trading partners down the line. They are a developing continent. We have so much trade potential there that we want to not be excluded from it. But the other part of it is Africa is a transit continent. You, you have a lot of... You know, a lot of the bad things that happen in the Middle East are funded by Iran that does business through Africa to Latin America, China, and the rest of the world. It's a hub for world geopolitics. It's a stage where the big powers go to fight it out so they don't fight militarily with each other. And it's important because, you know, if we lose influence there, if we don't develop allyships there, mm -hmm. China will once again be excluding American interests from developing around the world. And everyone looks to China for world leadership, not the U.S. Which countries, Muslim-dominant countries in Africa, do you think would be low-hanging fruit to try to expand the Abraham Accords? Uh, it wouldn't even necessarily be Muslim-dominant countries, but we're looking at countries like Kenya, which, which is uh, more Western-oriented for decades. The countries that we really want to get into, whether it's Nigeria or Congo, or, or places where China has been expanding their trade deals, where they're building highways and infrastructure, where they're taking over ports, those are countries that could absolutely benefit from, from the Abraham Accords, if you will, normalizing relationships with America, with Israel. Israel has been a big player in Africa, helping them develop their infrastructure as well so we can we can use more of those types of trade deals and you know push american hegemony back into the agenda political analyst gerard filetti from the lawfare project is my guest why is it that africa has has been ignored through generations much like the americas latin americas have been ignored where you have a, a labor force that's young that could be educated and could provide uh, affordable labor for many of the market products that are in demand everywhere. It's like we focus on Asia, we focus on China, and we forgot about Africa and Latin America. Why is that? Well, the, these continents were really important during the Cold War. That is when we had proxies. We were supporting uh, countries in South America and in, in Africa as a bulwark against Soviet expansion and communism. The problem is that once the Cold War ended, we really didn't have a focus on that anymore. The U.S. looked inward, starting with the Bill Clinton presidency. We started focusing on domestic issues, and we pulled back from both continents. In South America, we see that we're paying the price in this now with, with illegal immigration. Yep. Before, when we 
supported economies and we invested down there, people were less likely to move to America or to try to find better lives in America. Now that we don't have investment and infrastructure there, we're not doing business anymore, they're coming to the U.S. In Africa, it's a different problem. It's We, we could benefit from a labor market, as you said. Yeah. They have natural resources galore, but we are excluding ourselves by not having a cohesive foreign policy. We've been too inward-looking for far too long. Yeah, you mentioned Kenya as an example. Boy, I would imagine that that country... Uh, and, and other similar countries in Africa would be more friendly uh, as far as culture and sympathies toward the U.S. would be a lot more friendly than China and other places in Asia. And I, I think it's a missed opportunity for uh, some of these companies that they, they should have they set up shop there a long time ago. I'll give you the final thought. Well, you know, the relationships in, in Africa and South America are a lot like dating. You need to be persistent. You need to be pleasant. You need to be there for your partner. If you're not, then your partner looks elsewhere. And the U.S. for far too long, and especially under the Biden administration, has been looking in other directions and ignoring foreign policy altogether. Congress is now pushing for a change. Hopefully, the Biden administration will get the message and, and, and listen. Hey, Gerard, before I let you go, tell folks about the Lawfare Project that you represent. Well, thank you. We are a nonprofit based in New York City. We focus on issues of counterterrorism, national security, civil and human rights, and we fight anti-Semitism. Uh, so we, we do it all, and we appreciate everyone's support. We, are, we can find us at thelawfareproject.org. Thanks, Gerard. Gerard Filitti with the Lawfare Project. This is The Sergio Show. your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday mornings starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day and special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, good morning, guys. Well, let's not enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday mornings starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. I understand that much of what happens day to day with our money, our wealth, it's actually digital money many times, is controlled by artificial intelligence that is increasing in power and in efficiency and in application. Jim Bunch is an expert in emerging technology. Jim, I appreciate your time. Brother. Oh, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Do you and I live in a world that will see the end of the use of cash, paper money, coins? Outside of collectibles, the actual use of paper money and coins. Do you think you and I will see that in our lifetime? I think it's a high probability. Um, I'm hoping that we don't because of the control that can be placed on people by limiting their access to currency. Um, but I think it's possible. Artificial intelligence is not a perfected technology. I'm just afraid that we might give the computers too much control too soon. You have a similar concern? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm usually an optimist. I think there's great things about this, but when we look at things like deep fakes, and anybody who's Googled Tom Cruise deep fake will see that this technology is advancing quickly. Uh, anybody who's ever logged in online and used your password for your bank account, those things are being cracked. Those codes are cracked in seconds now. Anybody's concerned about the jobs that are going to be displaced? Um, recent report came out saying 300 million jobs could be replaced by AI. 
and then of course uses for military and things like that, um, you know, where AI and robotics can be combined. Those are real concerns that we need to pump the brakes yeah. and start having some real conversation. Okay, which begs a question then, kind of similar to my first question. If you and I might live in a world that would see the end of the use of currency and paper money, then how many more years or decades do we need to wait for this technology, this artificial intelligence, to finally be hack-proof, hacker-proof? Well, that, that is a great question because you've got AI that's working against the AI. It's a bit of an AI arms race, if you will. So as soon as one tech comes out, there's another one that's working against that technology. You see it in the school systems already. You see it in the financial sectors. Um, you know, we, we do need some governance here, and we need to be aware that there's massive benefits and there's some challenges. And it's accelerating when we're combining yeah. AI with quantum computing. It's a big game. And because it is... It happens at light speed in the less than a blink of an eye. Doesn't that alone, shouldn't that alone warn us, force us to not give control of the financial sector and security, national defense, everything else that controls our life, traffic systems? Isn't that enough of a warning that it happens in an instant and computers in an instant could make a mistake? Or other nefarious hackers, computers would uh, would compromise security. Doesn't that also um, warn us to put this monster in the cage and keep it there, and and, and try to tame it and, and use it to our benefit and not give it full control of all systems? That's the ideal. I mean, the reality is the cat's out of the bag or the genie's out of the bottle, depending on how you want to look at it. We currently have the ability to limit it, but keep in mind that it's writing code now. So the AI is telling itself what Jeez. code to write. And you can drop that onto anybody's computer disconnected from the ones that are now OpenAI or ChatGPT. Those are controlled. But the moment somebody says, hey, write me a code that gives me my own version of ChatGPT, they yeah. put that on their own servers, you got a whole new game. In industry and business, I get it. But we need to maximize profit. And, of course, as you were mentioning, some folks that might lose their job to artificial intelligence software. But, man, I'm thinking about water systems, electrical systems, air traffic control. Uh, I mentioned defense. Um, and waterway traffic, uh, you know, air traffic control, all that stuff. I don't know, man. I think that industry and businesses, it it's part of the, the natural impulse to try to maximize profit and use a, an efficient computer system. Um, I think that all these novels and all these movies that we've seen for decades on artificial intelligence, the computer's taking over and <laughs> destroying humanity, um, we know where this is headed, and, and I don't see any way to stop this because it's the part of the natural impulse of, of business and industry and some people in government try to maximize efficiency and we're going to get ourselves in trouble in our lifetime I think yeah it's a real conversation and we should be having it globally are they up in DC though um, I think that the conversation is starting I was chatting with a couple of uh, people who are pretty high levels and they're aware of it but I don't think that they're fully informed on it <laughs> I was going to say no no 
Yeah. Now, keep in mind, yeah. we have some people who have used this to stop 22 terrorist attacks. The same kind of AI was used with facial recognition to identify the Boston bomber. So okay. our, our military is very aware of it, and we need to make sure that, that our congressmen and senators, presidents, are also highly aware of it. Yeah, it's, you might be asking for too much. Even if we sent all these politicians, all these senators and congresspeople and the president back to junior college and try to get a refresher course, or maybe even get maybe start understanding coding and technology and artificial intelligence. None of these folks know what they're talking about. I don't know what they're talking about. None of these folks who make the policy decisions knows what they're talking about. I would even guess that some of the nerds who work for them, some of the kids who work for them for a minimum salary, have little or no knowledge of how to regulate this properly. So we're going to be in a situation where we're going to be reacting to emergencies instead of being proactive. What do you think? I think we've got an election coming up that's probably going to test your theories there. Okay. <laughs> I didn't even scratch that one. I didn't, well, I didn't even want to go into that nightmare where computers are running the elections now. God forbid. Oh, no, we can't do that. All right, Jim, on that happy thought, I'll let you go, brother. Thank you for joining us today. This is The Sergio Show. There's a claim in cancer research. They say that artificial intelligence might help perhaps give us uh, – Something preventative or maybe reactive, maybe a vaccine or maybe a therapy sometime in the future. Someone who's on the front lines of biotechnology, John Vandermosten. Tell folks what you do for a living real quick. Give me your, your creds, John. Go ahead. Sure. So I'm an investment analyst and, and cover oncology companies and also look at oncology companies that are using AI to develop their drugs and look at the whole broad area of AI and how it affects healthcare. What would you say to people who would point to, for example, and, and I'm very familiar with this because of the cystic fibrosis um, that my 11-year-old is dealing with, and the therapies that are amazing, life-saving, without direct federal funding for about 50 years now, but a very unique way of investing the, the donations that they receive, creating labs. That created things like, let's say, I don't know, the, the Z-Pack made money, created more labs. Uh, ibuprofen created more labs. And before you know it, they've got miracle pills that my kids is swallowing and has now extended his lifespan up to uh, beyond 50 years old and, and, and still growing, and, and still increasing. Okay, so if the CF community that's really tiny and, and their research method and investment method has produced these therapies, why is it that after fighting cancer for more than a century now and billions, if not trillions of dollars that have been applied if you adjust for inflation, why is it that we don't have at least a, a vaccine or a therapy that extends life? What would you say to people that make that complaint? Sure. You know, cancer is one of the most difficult diseases to, to address. And, you know, every disease has, has its idiosyncrasies that can, you know, make it harder or easier to, um, to take care of. And, you know, even in cancer, some, some cancers are, are easier to address than others. Breast cancer, for example, is one of the more survivable cancers. And then if you look at kind of the other end of the spectrum, pancreatic cancer is less survivable. Um, and one of those reasons why, it's, uh, why, why survivability is better in some versus others is that they can screen and identify it early. And that's really the key is to uh, identify early so that the therapies that we do have work better and earlier before the cancer metastasizes. What would the role of artificial intelligence be then? What, what are the problems that AI would solve? Some of the formulas that they would finally answer? What do you think it would be? Well, how do you think AI is going to help maybe develop a vaccine or, 
or something uh, something uh, of a yeah. Therapy. I mean, it can it can help on many many fronts. You know, one of the one of the main ones that you know the, the article that you referenced here is that it can help diagnose it early. Uh, you know, radiologists look at mm-hmm. hundreds of different uh, uh, X-rays or other kinds of imaging to diagnose cancer. But you know, humans can only keep like two or three things or in their mind at one time. And really, if there's a whole bunch of factors we have to consider, we kind of lose some of the later ones. But AI doesn't have that problem. I mean, it can look at hundreds of things. It can look at not only the image, but whether somebody had smoked or, you know, was it was in a certain area where they're exposed to hazardous things. Okay. So there are really um, a lot of more factors that uh, AI can do. What would AI be looking at then? Yeah. What, uh, images, uh, blood work, or what is it that it needs, needs yeah, to look well, at? Well, you know, you know, I mean, that's the great thing is it can look at everything. And AI can can look at millions potentially of of images and and other things such as blood work to come up and find those elements that are tied to cancer being diagnosed later. Even and genetic that's, history, that's right? They, even even the genetic history. That, well, exactly. Family, right. Yeah, that's one of the main things. You know, looking for mutations in the genome that uh, are indicative of cancer, like BRCA one and BRCA two. I think we've probably heard of those. Um, they're a little bit more popular um, in in the cancer space. You know, yeah. People know about them. John Vandermosten is a senior biotechnology analyst. We're talking about AI and perhaps the role that AI might play near future, I would hope, in developing a therapy or maybe even a vaccine or some type of screening process for cancer. Give folks the heads up. Because you mentioned you detected early, and that's the best shot. You mentioned pancreatic cancer. That's why on um, pancreatic cancer, when they find it, it's too late because it's already metastasized. It's already well beyond. You don't feel it. That's the problem with something exactly. like that. Yeah. All right, pal. So, yeah, you're right, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the symptoms are, are ones that, you know, may be confused with something else. So if you had an AI that was able to go in there and identify exactly those symptoms and maybe the extent of them that was tied to pancreatic cancer, you know, maybe you could get it a year earlier and, and survivability would be greater. Yeah, just slice it off and move on with it. Are you willing to put some money on the table, bet how many years, maybe how many decades before we see some type of, I don't know if I want to call it a cure, but at least a therapy, uh, some corrector, or maybe even a vaccine for cancer. You know, we've had we've got some vaccines in development now for cancer. Um, they they've shown uh, they haven't been approved yet. You know, and they've shown some some uh, benefit. Um, but you know, the process to get a drug through the regulatory process is you know can take up to ten years, and because uh, of all the clinical trials you have to run. But uh, it's being worked on right now by by many companies, and you know, I'm hopeful. Yeah, unless it's declared an emergency like COVID, then we'll definitely grease the skid. And get it through. Which that, you know, that, yeah. that could speed things up. Yeah. Which, by the way, they used cancer-related research, right, technology, to develop that COVID uh, vaccine, that COVID therapy, I understand. That's why That's why they were so Oh, the, yes, the mRNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mRNA. Yeah, I think it has many applications besides just uh, viruses. John, so, yeah, it's an exciting technology. Pleasure speaking with you, John. Thank you. We'll call you again. John Vandermosten is Senior Biotechnology Analyst. This is The Sergio Show. News Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. And we mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news on News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have a In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. And KURV.com.
You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. I welcome Travis Steffens. He's with R Investments. He's the founder and CEO of this group. And I understand that his life's calling is to help homeless folks get a new lease on life, transforming their their path in life. Travis, it's a pleasure. Hey, tell folks a bit more about what you do for a living and how you came about uh, doing this for for a living, helping folks get back on track. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. So I've been in real estate investing for the last 16 years, and for the last seven, eight years, we have we built a vertically integrated real estate investment company, so we have a construction company that's within that company, and I love to preach and teach conscious capitalism, and part of our mission was to take homeless individuals off the streets house them in the multifamily projects and hotels that we were purchasing to renovate, using them to renovate the projects so we would house them, give them the tools for the trade, train them. And then when we were done with that project, we would use it for housing in those rough areas to be able to give people quality, affordable housing. And then we would pack everybody up and go to the next project and help them leave the past behind and step into a new future. Yes, sir. Every every corner of this country has homelessness, and, and for different reasons. You know, for example, I think California, with their economic issues and high cost of living and lower salaries, and and I was in New Mexico a few days back, and they have uh, legal marijuana, and it's a beautiful place to live as well. But a lot of people living on the streets were camping out there as well. Homelessness for for different reasons. But you being on the front lines of tackling this issue, uh, there was a recent report that said that across America, homelessness is up post-COVID. Uh, why is that, Travis? Yeah, it's, it's roughly counted about 55,000 people up since COVID. Of course, what happened during COVID just pushed more people out of their businesses, out of their jobs. And it's amazing um, when you actually go into the back streets. What's interesting is everybody sees the people on the street corner and we're the, we're the problem that people are on the street corner begging for money because we give them money to fill a hole inside of us for feeling bad about that individual that's standing there when we have a car in a house. Worst thing we could do is be doing that. But backing up a little bit, there's people that are in tents and things along the back streets that you don't see that have a true story that, hey, I was an accountant, I had my own practice and things went downhill and I lost my wife and then I lost my clients and then I got into alcohol and drugs and I lost everything and they're sober on the back streets and because of the system that the government has created that you can't hire somebody without an active ID, an address, social security card, and all these different things, um, it's just made it impossible for them to reintegrate. And so we had to take all those figures into account, build a systematic flow, and combat that. Travis Steffens with Our Investments. He, his firm is hoping to transform more lives, uh, folks that are homeless, and get them, give them a new lease on life, trying to get them into a path toward self um, uh, sustenance and, and maybe providing shelter for themselves as well. But there's also the other issue uh, on top of post COVID homelessness and, and other issues that, you know, different communities deal with. 
there's the perpetual uh, chronic problem of folks who have psychological, psychiatric issues. They've always, it seems that they've always been out in the street. Uh, there's some people that argue that government, state governments, should help test folks again and find help for them again. The, the folks who are mentally ill, can, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so in our process, we would take them off the streets, house them in the projects, as I said, and give them tools to train and train them. And one of the biggest challenges with our government right now is they have no concept of how to deal with these individuals because they've never been ground level with them for a long enough period of time to understand it. And by taking an individual and sending them to a psychiatrist, the only professional on the planet that doesn't have to do testing to prescribe heavy medication gives them medication, sends them back out, and tells them to come back twice a day because the government pays for this. Oh, we had a 100% failure rate with anyone that was on any government subsidy with a psychiatrist. We had an 80% success rate on people who came off the streets that had never gone to a psychiatrist and had, didn't have access to quote-unquote medication. Mm -hmm. So in your experience, it's simply solving the issue of providing a meal and a bed that got people back toward a path of, of sustenance, so providing for themselves? No, it's not nearly that simple. And this is another problem is people think homes and a meal cures homelessness, and it doesn't. California is dumping billions of dollars into these tiny little doghouse-sized homes thinking that that's going to cure homelessness, mm. and it's not. Um, you, you don't create dignity from a human being by sticking them in a doghouse. And the more we give to the individuals that are homeless, the more it's going to create homelessness. It reinforces the nature and the culture of you don't have to contribute to society. And if you want to see the proof of this, go look on the streets. You're, you will see next to no Mexicans, Spanish, or um, Asian individuals that are homeless. They're all blacks and whites. And the reason being is because the, the, the first people I mentioned still have family values and they have a culture that says you need to contribute to the family and you need to contribute to the culture and we're not going to let you be homeless. And the homelessness in America is a reflection of America. It's a reflection of broken family values. It's a reflection of the country as a whole. It's not just a reflection of the government. And we have to take responsibility for what we've done, and we have to fix it as a whole, or it's just going to grow. Interesting conversation. Where do folks find you online, Travis? Um, Travis at rinvestments.net is my email. Travis at rinvestments.net or rinvestments.net is our website, just rinvestments.net. Travis Steffens, thanks for the conversation. Be well, brother. Thank you. This is The Sergio Show.